My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds I keep covering up the sun. On today's episode of Just a Mom, Dr. Shayla Sullivan is with me. Hi, Dr. Sullivan. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for being here on Just a Mom and for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to be with me. I know you have a wealth of information to share with parents. And if you would just get started by telling us a little bit about your practice, your background, what you like to, to spend your time doing in, in terms of your work. Sure. So I grew up here in Kansas City, and I graduated from the University of Kansas for medical school. Um, went to Creighton University in Nebraska for my undergraduate degree, and then I specialized in adult psychiatry and in child and adolescent psychiatry. So that's a fellowship that you complete. And then after I finished, I came on staff at Children's Mercy, and that was in 2010. Um, so my time at the hospital has been pretty varied. I like a variety in my practice, and so I've spent a lot of time on the inpatient units as a consultation liaison psychiatrist psychiatrist, seeing children that are in the hospital for lots of different reasons. Maybe they come into the hospital for leukemia treatment, but then they also need psychiatric support for depression or anxiety. Um, I also work in our eating disorder clinic. I used to work in our Tourette clinic. And then I have a general clinic where I see kids that come in with a variety of different concerns. Um, kids from about the age of five till young adulthood is who I work with. So I really enjoy seeing people kind of grow up over that time span. Um, and then a Another portion of my time is spent in research. So I'm a big fan of looking at ways that we can prevent some of the crises that I see in my day-to-day practice and, and trying to do some of that early intervention, particularly with parents. So I spend a good portion of my time doing research and, and publishing, presenting at conferences, and, and doing education as well, trying to get more people to join us in this awesome field. Excellent, which is exactly why you're here, because we know, you and I both do, that there really is a, a gap in terms of education for parents, uh, parents knowing what to do if and when a crisis happens and how to handle it, who to call. I've had multiple parents that I've interviewed tell me that very thing. I didn't know what to do. So I'm I'm really excited to have you here and share a lot of your expertise. And so some parents that may not even know they're going to need this information might hear it, tuck it away so that if and when they do down the road, then they know what to do next. Sure. Yeah. I think you're right on in, in thinking about prevention. And really, historically, psychiatry has not been the field of prevention. Pediatrics is really good at it. So when you think about taking your child to the pediatrician, they do well-child checks and they give all kinds of anticipatory guidance of what you should be expecting 
expecting for your child in terms of developmental milestones or things to watch out for. And they do immunizations and they talk about seatbelts and all these important things that help to keep our kids safe. And yet most parents never see a psychiatrist, right, when their Mm. kids are growing up. So they don't get any of that guidance necessarily that a psychiatrist might provide. And many people, I think, honestly, would hope to never need a psychiatrist for their child, which is very understandable. Um, And many people are able to get their emotional or mental health needs met with the pediatrician, which is fantastic. Um, But I do think there's a gap and often sometimes there's a delay in seeking treatment. Um, I'm a parent myself and I get that sometimes we just wish something wasn't a problem, you know, and, and hope that something just kind of resolves on its own. And just like other conditions, early intervention is always better when it comes to mental or behavioral health problems. So sometimes what we see is that we're coming into a crisis situation Mm -hmm. and we wish we would have been able to address it maybe six months prior, Mm -hmm. back when it was beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a really important piece of what you're Mm -hmm. doing is kind of normalizing for parents this conversation because so many kids are struggling Mm. and parents are not always getting that education about where do I go, who do I call? The whole system is not particularly Mm user-friendly. I think a lot of people are working to make it better, but there's also a limit on the number of resources. So that makes Mm -hmm. for a real tough mismatch. And insurance is not always covering what appropriate care looks like. Right. Which makes it extra challenging because it can be very, very expensive and that's a barrier. Um, What do you think, you mentioned a little bit that now more than ever we're having an increase in the need for psychiatric and mental health care for our kids. Why do you think that is? Well, that's a great question. And I think it's complex. I would say that if you look at the data, there was an in- increase for many years prior to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And with the onset of the pandemic, we have seen further increase. So mm-hmm. we've basically around the world, when you look at meta-analyses that look at multiple studies at one time, we find that there have been a doubling of rates of depression and anxiety among young people. We've seen huge increases in young people presenting to the emergency department with suicidal thoughts, particularly girls we are seeing have been really hit hard by this pandemic. Um, I think we could talk all day about the potential (laughs) contributing factors. Is Mm -hmm. it the social isolation? Is it the lack of routine? I mean, I've had patients in my office that got into a really bad sleep routine where they Mm -hmm. were staying up most of the night, sleeping most of the day, missing instruction at school. And sometimes when we are not in our regular environment, it's harder to get back to it. Mm. So if you have social anxiety, you were out of school for six months or a year, and now trying to get your foot back in the door can be very difficult. So that paired with many people trying to stay away from the healthcare system mm. um, because they didn't want to be exposed to COVID. Right. Um, there's been a lot of those barriers. I've I've talked to some families who said, well, I'm going to wait this out, mm. this pandemic. You know, and none of us knew, at least I certainly did not <laughs> right. know with the onset where oh. we were headed. And mm-hmm. so I remember saying to folks, let's not wait. Let's go mm-hmm. ahead and address this because we just don't know how long it's going to take. You know, telehealth, many people mm-hmm. were averse to telehealth. And I found so many people actually love it and feel Mm -hmm. like it's really convenient for their family. But when it's new, it can feel different and a little scary. So I think there's a lot of reasons, you know, and of course, social media Mm -hmm. and all this time on technology, I think we're learning can have some harmful effects. Not it's not all bad, but definitely Mm -hmm. can have some challenges for young people. Sure. 
Yeah, it it is. I think, like you said, there's just a multiple multiple number of reasons why the increase, but you see it firsthand. I, I hear it third hand from moms or dads who are calling or friends are saying, oh, talk to my friend Susie because she's been through this. Mm-hmm. But I, it has really gone up for for the last couple of years in terms of how many people are just asking me for advice. And right. I'm just a mom. I'm, I'm not a Well, but you're a mom that's here. been there, right? <laughs> so, and and I think that's huge. Yes, I think is. that kind of validation is mm. so important because I find that many times parents feel very alone, sometimes feel judged yep. by our society. I mean, there's actually a history in my field of psychiatry of pointing a finger at parents as the cause of problems. And that's so not how I or my colleagues look at it today. But there's a lot of good reason why people might want to steer clear of mm. seeking care and feel um, really uncomfortable with the whole process. So we have a lot of work to do in terms of gaining trust and and helping build that with the community. That is so interesting. I have never heard anybody say that, but I think about my parents' generation mm-hmm. and it was just not talked about. Right. And I guess if that was what they were being told, you know, however many years ago, then that's that was ingrained into their heads and so then my generation was raised that way and now we're parenting kids Mm -hmm. who are having mental health trouble and we're having trouble talking about it to each other and or seeking help sure sure I think the cool thing is I'm seeing you know with all the different initiatives a lot of young people are getting much more comfortable with erasing that stigma and saying, hey, we need to talk about this. This is a problem and we have to address it. And I, I think that's a beautiful change. And it's going to make a big difference, I think, for kids moving forward, for sure. Definitely. And just the fact that our kids are doing a lot better job about all of this mental health and talking about it than we are. Well, I think they're talking a lot and I think they've got some good role models. You Mm. know, we look at athletes today. I mean, Mm, when I first started my practice, there were some talking about mental health concerns. But my goodness, now we have really a great example at the top of just about every sport of someone coming forward in gymnastics and tennis and Mm. swimming saying, yes, I have faced these struggles. And not only have I faced them, but I have gotten help Mm -hmm. and I continue to be a strong, successful person. Mm -hmm. This did not end my career. Mm. And I think that's so important because sometimes I think there can be a message of um, desperation and a focus on some of the tragic outcomes Mm -hmm. that we've all Mm -hmm. seen in the media. And those are awful and need to be recognized. And they are the minority. Most people who Mm -hmm. face these struggles, boy, they recover. Mm -hmm. They can get help and things can get better for them. And so I think the fact that we have folks, leaders in our community shining light on those examples, Mm -hmm. I think is, is going to be really helpful for people moving forward, actually seeking care that they need. Excellent. That is that is so true. Very, very good. Let's transition and talk about some of your work in suicide prevention. Sure. Uh, You started a program called Prepped and Ready. We were just discussing before the podcast how a few years ago I was at an event that Mm -hmm. you were on the panel and you were just coming out with this amazing program. Would you tell our listeners about 
prepped and ready and what it is? Sure. Yeah, it's really a program geared towards caregivers, raising young people. So parents or if it's a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle raising someone, foster parent. Um, in my practice early on, what I found was I was meeting parents in crisis mm-hmm. in the hospital, often on the worst day of their lives when a suicide attempt had brought their child into the hospital. And in those conversations, we would talk about ways to make things safer at home. So how do you talk to your child about these thoughts? Is it safe? Yes, it is safe. Mm-hmm. But many parents haven't learned that before. And who do you call? What is a safety plan? How do you store things in your home so that they're not accessible, those things that are used in suicide attempts? And I had so many really smart parents look at me really frustrated and say, you know, no one's ever told me this before. Maybe if someone would have told me this last week, we wouldn't be sitting here. Mm -hmm. And so I really learned from the parents that we as a medical community need to do a better job here. Mm -hmm. And so pair that with, we were getting calls at the hospital that a community would lose someone to suicide and they would invite me to come speak. Mm. And I started thinking about, well, how do we make this open to all parents? I mean, I think the research is pretty clear on this, that most parents don't feel like their son or daughter is at risk for Mm -hmm. suicide. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. It's hard to ever imagine that could Mm -hmm. happen in your own family, but then it makes it hard, right, to make change with this. And so we try to include topics that that were um, things that all parents might be receptive to. So things that really come up day to day in my office, like vaping. You know, mm-hmm. many parents today were not uh, were not um, around vaping when they were mm-hmm. in high school or growing up, so they don't know much about it. Sure. And so I went and I bought my vape pen to learn about it and <laughs> read all about it. You know, and then um, eating disorders I talk mm-hmm. about because mm-hmm. those often go unrecognized. Mm-hmm. And I see kids in my office who have sometimes flown under the radar for years mm-hmm. with their symptoms. And so really trying to empower parents. These are some warning signs. If you notice these, then take action. Mm-hmm. Ask more questions. It's it's only about an hour presentation, mm-hmm. so not very long, but trying to really give parents some tools of mm-hmm. tangible things that they can do with a really big focus on the fact that suicide is a preventable cause of death. Mm. And so that's a really important piece that I think we need to focus on. We need families really more comfortable having those tough conversations, Mm. reaching out for help early, and then making those changes at home. So Mm -hmm. making sure that firearms and medications are inaccessible at home because we know that teenage brains are still developing into their 20s, really. And so we really want to give them time to develop and not make some of those um, decisions that are irreversible. And Mm -hmm. of course, we cannot control our kids. We cannot control the world and the environment that they're in. But there are some things that we can do within our own homes and storage is one of them. Mm -hmm. So we started doing the presentations live in person. Of course, the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. So we we switched to webinars. And now we have a video series. I really wanted to engage more speakers in the video series. So it wasn't just me. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to get 10 doctors all available on 10 nights of the same year. But I could get them down to our filming studio. So that, that has been really fun. So now I have a pulmonologist talking about mm-hmm. vaping. I mean, that's he's really right in the middle of that, you know, in the hospital. So we have um, lots of different experts that are sharing their information. And then we pair it with tools because I think education is great, but the research is really clear that if you give people the actual tools to make changes, they're more likely to do it. So we have a lockable medication storage box. We have weekly medication organizers. So that really encourages folks to lock up those 90-day supplies and have a smaller amount unlocked. And then for firearm owners, we give them a cable gun lock. And now we have a gun box. And then we also have a bag to dispose of 
of old medicines because many of us have a mm-hmm. lot of old meds we no longer need at home. And then we're measuring our results really to see, mm. did it make a difference? Did it make changes in your family? So that's that's been really exciting. So you're giving these tools away for free. We are. Yeah, it's part of a research study. And Mm -hmm. so it's really um, our gift to the community. You know, we're asking for your feedback. Did Mm -hmm. you learn anything here? And are you using this box? You know, so they fill out um, a couple of brief surveys. The surveys take about three to five minutes. So Mm -hmm. we want to make it short. I'm a working parent myself, and I know people just don't have a lot of time on their hands for surveys. But we want to know... Did we teach you something mm-hmm. or is this stuff you already knew? Because then we need to change gears, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so far it's been really good. We've gotten some great feedback. A lot of parents, for example, are just shocked that over-the-counter medicines can be as dangerous mm-hmm. as they are at times. And many of us have really large volumes. You know, we go to the wholesale retailer and we come home with huge volumes that can be quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so just making sure parents have that information at their disposal is something we feel really good about. And do you have to live in Kansas City to access this information? So we have expanded to Kansas and Missouri. So throughout both states. So we've definitely wanted to reach people in rural communities, Mm -hmm. um, really all over the states. Our goal, of course, is to go nationwide. But currently, of course, there's always a limit on funding. And we've had some generous donors that are supporting this work. But right now, that's where we're limited. We just got a grant from Kansas City, Missouri. So we'll be focusing in on that community and in the coming months. But yeah, we want to keep going. We want to make it better and and really see how does this message land with parents. Um, but so far, it's, it's been really promising across the board. Um, we wanted to make sure that firearm owners were not offended by the mm-hmm. message because that mm-hmm. can be such a controversial, difficult right. thing to talk about. And we've had a really consistent across the board, 90% of folks say that they strongly agree that the presentation was valuable for them and that they would recommend it and things mm-hmm. like that. So we feel really good about that for sure so do you feel like at some point in time then that if someone lives in you know let's say new hampshire and happens to be listening to this and thinks wow i'd really like to access these videos and then get these kits these safety kits you think there will be a time when that will be a reality. Certainly. That is the goal. Yes. And they're always welcome to email us. So at prepped and ready at cmh.edu is our email. And so we've definitely had inquiries from folks that have a question. You know, we had a small town in Missouri. They wanted to host a viewing session at a movie theater. And we Mm, said, okay, yeah, that that makes sense. And so we're kind of trying to be open to what is the best way to deliver this Mm -hmm. information. During COVID, we found that, you know, group gatherings were really frowned upon, of course. We Mm -hmm. didn't want to do a super spreader event. We're just trying to be open, like what works? And for some parents, maybe if they have multiple jobs or they don't have childcare, maybe they'll never make it to an evening event. And Mm -hmm. so this way they could watch these videos on demand when they want to. It's, It's so, I've watched them and they are so well done and so accessible and I think they are phenomenal, and I I can't wait to till this is available to everyone throughout the entire United States because this is some of the best um, prevention 
information for parents that I've ever seen. Well, thank you. You know, one thing I I feel bad about is when I talk to parents, I often find that they're really isolated. So Mm. I think the work that you're doing is so important because I think parents need a network. Who do I talk to when I'm going through this? And the doctor is not enough, right? You have a limited Mm -hmm. amount of time with a clinician that's caring Mm -hmm. for your child. And I think other parents who have been there and experienced it, I think that's really important. And I just felt like there was a gap there. Often Mm -hmm. the offerings that we have in our field are geared towards the patient. Mm -hmm. But really, the folks that are there that can help guide that person along their path are the caregivers. And we need to be able to offer them more, I feel like. Well, and like you said, by working to break down the stigma and normalizing psychiatric care and prevention, hopefully... Mm-hmm. that's what we'll do over time. And that's why I'm doing this is getting right. people to talk about their children's struggles. And so it's not any different than if your child broke his arm or, you know, had a different kind of disease. And you wouldn't not tell your friends and family that your daughter had cancer. Right. So I I am with you on that. I sure hope that we can bust some of those barriers down and just get people talking more and more. And our kids are doing a good job of doing that. They are. They so are. We're following their lead. Mm-hmm. For sure. I want to read on that note, I want to read a quote that um, is, I think it's on your Children's Mercy website uh, that you said, it says, bad things happen in good families too. Some of the best parents in the world face really challenging periods with their children. Being a good parent does not make our kids immune to tough times. There are changes we can make and steps we can take to make our homes safer and our community health healthier. That is right there, in my opinion, the whole good parent thing is a big reason that a lot of parents don't want to talk about their children struggling. What's your experience with that? Oh, for sure. I think it's it's so exquisitely painful, I think, mm-hmm. to face the fact that your own child is struggling. And there's that fear of judgment, that mm-hmm. you're not doing things right, that you somehow caused this problem. And I think that that is one of the biggest barriers because then it's hard to seek care and it's hard to ask people for help mm-hmm. because there can be that that challenge, that difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I've, I've just certainly learned this through my own experience with all the families my office, I care for some of the most amazing families, right? Mm -hmm. And these parents that have such love and commitment to their kids and sometimes just are struggling with, I don't know, is this a problem? Is this not? Is just, is this the teenage years? They start to isolate more. It's really, no one gives us a guidebook, you know, Mm -hmm. to really clarify what is normal and what is crossing the line into a concern. And so I think, um, we do have to talk about that more and, and take away that blame from parents because the parents are really oftentimes able to help down that path of recovery. Um, but we, we can't be feeling that blame or else that's going to get in the way. Mm-hmm. I, exactly. And that's something that I've yeah talked about and just that, that good mom, how, you know, we have had people ask us, how did this happen to a family like yours? And I'm thinking, well, how did this child down the street get cancer? Exactly. It doesn't discriminate. But Mm -hmm. there seems to be this idea that if you're a good parent, Mm -hmm. that you're going to not have those struggles. And I don't know if we perhaps, you know, we have this Facebook culture, social media, where everyone is posting the most beautiful moments of their lives, but they're not typically posting, oh, 
I just found out today that my daughter is engaging in self-injury. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh right. my goodness. Right. I mean, that's a really hard one, but so right. many parents have that experience. And so I think we have a bit of a mismatch there. Mm. But yeah, for sure. You said something that I'd like to go back to um, while we were just a minute ago talking about um, the signs and what's a problem and what is normal teenage behavior. And I have said that, and so have so many of the people and parents that I've talked to when our son was struggling, and he wasn't our oldest. He's our youngest. Mm -hmm. And we thought... It was normal teenage behavior. Will you talk a little bit about that and how, what do parents need to do to recognize what is quote unquote normal and what's a concern? Yeah. So I I first just want to acknowledge, I don't think it's easy. Mm -hmm. And so I I think the reason why we often don't know when someone is struggling is because it isn't easy and every personality is a little different. So, I mean, one of the hallmark things to look for is a change for that individual. You know, some kids tend to be quiet and introverted and that is their norm. And so we wouldn't be so surprised if that child was spending time alone in their room reading. But if you have a child that's usually very gregarious and outgoing and all of a sudden they drop off a soccer team and they don't want to go to the birthday party and they're hanging out, that that seems strange. So any kind of big change, I think you need to take notice of. Um, I will say that I'm a big fan of having a community of adults involved in the child's life because often kids struggle to go to their parents. The best parents in the world, I find kids will say to me, well, if I tell my mom I'm having these thoughts, she might not let me go to the movies on Saturday mm-hmm. with my friends. And it it seems like, what? what how mm-hmm. are they thinking? But I think having multiple adults can be a good thing to check in mm-hmm. with the young person. And some kids are going to feel more comfortable talking to Um, Uncle Joe, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe just his demeanor or that kind of thing. Of course, we don't want an adult that's going to keep secrets. Mm -hmm. But I think making sure they have others that they can connect with is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had a lot of people say, well, you know, you try to have those casual conversations in the car when you're not just staring into their eyes. And sometimes those moments where they let their guard down and talk. And I think that's really true that those come out, out of the blue often mm-hmm. when you're running late for work and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they're ready to engage. So mm-hmm. whenever you can, you know, to try to stop and listen. But I think there are the typical warning signs that we all think of that changes in appetite, changes in sleep, changes in interest or daily hygiene. Um, some of those things we should take notice, you know, mm-hmm. so if someone is dropping a ton of weight, whoa, what's going on? Mm-hmm. What's what's the explanation for that? Um, and I would say that If you see concerns, your gut instinct is really important to listen to and to follow that. So there are going to be times where you just know something isn't right Mm -hmm. and you haven't been able to put your finger on it. I would encourage parents to keep pursuing that. So do you check in with a pediatrician? Do you, you know, has your child seen a therapist before? Maybe following up with that therapist would be a good idea. Um, Obviously, trying to talk to our kids is important. Mm-hmm. Um, not every child is is super open to talking, but I think if we can lead with that message of caring, hey, I really care about you and I'm concerned. These are some of the things I've noticed. Um, kids can often feel defensive and attacked, you know, mm-hmm. if, if they feel like we're getting on their case because their grades have come down or because mm-hmm. they're not getting mm-hmm. their chores done. But I think if we can lead with that message of I, I really love you and I'm I'm concerned and I want to understand this. Um And maybe one of the hardest for me is to sit with the silence a little bit. Mm. You know, sometimes we ask a question and 
it can be easy to jump in and mm-hmm. say, well, is it this? Is it this? And sometimes just giving some space and letting them know we're available mm. um, is important. Mm-hmm. So I think it's tough. I think the other thing, too, is to talk to others. Sometimes someone who's not in your family is going to notice a change better than you notice it yourself because you see your child every day. And so certainly with eating disorders, that's something that comes up a lot is weight loss can be really gradual. Same with weight gain. And so it may not be so obvious, but maybe then a neighbor or a family member who hasn't seen your child in a couple months expresses concern. That can feel kind of startling and unsettling as a parent. But I think if it's a person that you trust, it's important to listen to that and say, well, wait, hmm, is there something going on here that I haven't noticed? Mm, that's um, I, good. I, I always tell parents too, like, if you see a concern or your child expresses concern to you about something with someone else, what should you do with that? I've had parents mm-hmm. say, well, I don't want to get into other point. people's business. But then I think if it was your child, what would you want? Would you want someone to call you and have that awkward conversation? I, I'm all for the Absolutely. awkward, you know, call it out. This feels uncomfortable. I feel awkward calling you. I hope you don't think I'm overstepping. However, I don't want to miss the opportunity to say something mm-hmm. because, you know, we go down that path of, I had a missed opportunity, perhaps something bad happens. You know, usually when we have a loss in a community, when we lose someone to suicide, there were people that had concerns Mm. and often folks don't know where to go with that. And Mm. I think the first step is to speak up. Mm. That's a really good point because I think we do tend to not want to, you know, get in people's business. But if there's a a concern, if any kind of a life-threatening, potentially concern, we definitely should say something. And what about teachers, school officials, those types of people I would think would be good resources too. Oh, I think they're so important. And I think we learned that even more so during the pandemic. Mm. My respect for teachers has Mm. always been high, but (laughs) oh my goodness, watching them try to teach on a Zoom call and all the difficulties. And and I think kids really miss that interaction of between classes Mm -hmm. where the teacher might stop by the desk and say, hey, how are you doing? Checking in before school, all of that. I Mm -hmm. think our teachers are really our first responders in many respects Mm -hmm. when it comes to mental health. And many of them are very attuned to the daily rhythms of our kids and you know they're reading the essays that our kids are writing and I think that you know some of the legislation that has really pushed for teachers and all school officials to be well educated and warning signs Mm -hmm. is really important because I think they have that ability to do some of that early intervention and help link kids with supports that they need as well as school social workers Mm -hmm. school counselors you know I think having some of those resources embedded is super important our son will when he was struggling the first person he reached out to was his school counselor mm-hmm. so anytime i'm talking to a teacher or a counselor i remind that person that you know my kid yeah reached out to somebody like you so just know you might be right that person that a child comes to and you know they help save his life right exactly so what Let's go back to, you talked a little bit about eating disorders, and I've interviewed a parent Mm -hmm. um, about um, her daughter's struggle with um, anorexia. Have you seen an increase in eating disorders as well as depression and anxiety? Definitely. 
Okay. Yes, we have um, really had a hard time meeting the needs of our community mm. lately because there has been such a demand. Wow. So I think, um, again, we see that the pressures of the pandemic have been significant and the structure that school imposes on us is actually very helpful in so many respects mm-hmm. in terms of meals, in terms of, okay, this is where you go now and the meal is in front of you. It's different when you're at home. Um, and when you have a lot more time to be on social media and those things. So, yes, we have definitely seen an increase there. Um, and it's it's challenging because there's a limit on the number of clinicians that are um, knowledgeable about treating young people with eating disorders. Mm. So to a parent who might be noticing something that they think would be a red flag with an eating disorder, mm-hmm. same kind of advice as for depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. Yes, definitely speak up, lean into your discomfort and go ahead and follow up on it. So you can definitely talk to your child about it. You can read more to get more information. So there's websites like the National Eating Disorder Association where they have some really good, helpful information. But seeing your pediatrician is another good option. Um, Pediatricians know our kids, right? They've seen them from an early age, so they have that growth chart. They can do a good physical exam. But I also think it's really important to acknowledge that not all eating disorders are going to show up necessarily on a growth chart. Um, people can be really preoccupied with disordered um, eating disorder kinds of thoughts and um challenges that don't necessarily show up on a scale. And so we don't want to ignore that. But if you're seeing changes, you know, if you're seeing someone is skipping meals or seems out of control with eating, you're finding a lot of wrappers. I mean, those are things to follow up on. And Mm -hmm. I wouldn't just take reassurance from your child. I would try Mm -hmm. to follow up. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about the impulsivity. I know there's a prepped and ready video. Well, just like with the eating disorders, Mm -hmm. there's a prepped and ready video about impulsivity. Um, uh, There's also a wonderful organization here in town Mm -hmm. that I know you know. um, Give Me 20. Mm -hmm. They hand out the Give Me 20 bracelets. Mm -hmm. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So what we know is that our children's brains continue to mature and research is really showing us that they're not done maturing or growing when they turn 16 or 18 or even 21. So a lot of newer research is showing that it's into our mid 20s before our brains are fully developed. And so what we do know, though, is that early on as the brain is developing in those teenage years, the emotion centers of the brain are really on fire. So the amygdala and those parts of our brain where we have a lot of emotion, boy, are they lit up, you know, on an MRI scanner. And so when big things happen, where there's a lot of emotion, whether there's a breakup or um, some really awful tragedy that happens, there can be a lot of emotion for kids. But the executive functioning, that part of our brain in the frontal lobe that helps us stop and think through the consequences of our actions, that is one of the last parts of our brain to develop. And so we have this uneven battle kind of in our brains, and it kind of helps me understand teenagers where often they seem all over the place. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not their fault. They have a lot of emotion going on, and it's hard for them to think through the consequences of their actions. And so that's why I feel really strongly 
for example, about access to firearms. Mm-hmm. I'm not anti-firearms. I think it's a tough conversation to have. But what we know is that thinking through consequences is just not a skill that's fully developed at 18 years old. And so making sure that kids don't have quick access to things like that where they can have such permanent, awful outcomes is mm-hmm. really, really important. Mm. And... From what I understand, it's like was it like 17 minutes or something sometimes when a, a child has a suicidal thought to completion. There's yeah, there's several studies that show different outcomes, but there's one in particular that shows that at least half of people spent less than an hour thinking about something that they were going to do in terms of a suicide attempt. Um I will tell you, I think it's much less for many young people. I think there's often intermittent thoughts off Mm -hmm. and on for a while. And that's why we screen for suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. But when I interview kids in the hospital who've survived an attempt, and I've Mm -hmm. interviewed hundreds, and Mm -hmm. I say, when did you decide to do this? Often they don't seem to understand the question. Their response is, oh, you mean when did I pick up the fill in the blank, whatever Mm -hmm. they used. Mm -hmm. And I say, when did you decide? You know, so Mm. I think the media and television shows, you know, on Netflix and things sometimes send us the message that these acts are really well planned out and, oh, it was inevitable. And what could we have done to prevent it? When in fact, often there's a history of someone seemed okay and then something awful happened Mm. um, or there was lots of up and down. Mm -hmm. And so if we can restrict access to those things that are used in suicide attempts, then that window of opportunity can pass. And for some kids, it's multiple windows. I will Mm -hmm. acknowledge I work with some young people who really struggle with some of these thoughts and yet limiting access can make all the difference. Mm. And we know that the vast majority of people who have thoughts of suicide or even who have had attempts will not die by suicide in their Mm. future. And so we really have an opportunity to be motivated to limit that access. And I, I think that's really important. I met I met someone once after a presentation, I had been talking about 90 day supplies of medication Mm -hmm. and my concerns with the increase in in suicide deaths. And he shared with me that they lost his son the day that the 90 day supply had come in the mail. And that kind of story is just so Mm. painful and awful, but also motivates me to every time I prescribe medication to talk to families about making it inaccessible. We we should not have a community where teenagers have access to handfuls of medicine. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense. Right. I'm going to ask you a really hard question and I might decide to edit this out later. Okay. So of those kids who complete a suicide... What are the what's the most most successful means by which they do that? Okay, so um, if you look at studies of methods, one of the reasons why I focus on firearm storage so much is that firearms are so um, very lethal mm-hmm. when they are used in a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. So approximately ninety percent of the time, when a uh, firearm is used, um, it ends in lethality. Um, that is. Um, a focus that I share mostly with parents. I don't share that with my patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I think it's something parents need to understand because mm-hmm. often folks aren't thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've talked to a parent who uh, lost a child to suicide with his gun and mm-hmm. he wishes someone would have talked to him mm-hmm. about that risk, you know, and 
they enjoyed shooting together at the range. Mm -hmm. This was someone who knew how to handle firearms, who could be safe with firearms. So it's not necessarily about education at all. Mm -hmm. It's about that moment of desperation Mm -hmm. and assuring that they don't have access during that time. So it's it's a tough one for sure, a tough topic. But that's why I emphasize so much for parents, if you're going to make one change, limiting access to firearms in your home is is really key. Mm-hmm. Many parents will lock them up, but then teenagers will know where the key is. And so we have to really think about that risk. Sure. So firearms is, in your experience, the number one cause of death by suicide? Firearms are the most lethal. The most lethal. Yeah. But not necessarily the the most used right it kind of depends on the community and where you live in okay. our community about half of suicides for young people are with a firearm okay okay like I said I might end up taking that out because sure. that's a really hard thing for parents to hear but on the flip side mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also one of those things that that we need to hear right right well and I think if we can focus on the reduction of risk. Yes. That is really the risk. The reason why I emphasize locking up medication is not so much because there's that there's not near as much mortality with overdoses. It does happen, but there's a lot of morbidity, meaning a lot mm. of suffering, oh, yes. right? There's so many hospitalizations and and time away from school missed and it increases your risk of a future death by suicide to have an attempt. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's all important, but if you were going to make one change, we know that not having that access to firearms could make a huge difference. Okay. Thank you for answering that hard question. Yeah. Dr. Sullivan, in closing this really, really amazing interview, and I really appreciate your insight, what are some final thoughts or tips that you would have for parents other than the things that you've already offered? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I, I think really it's important for parents to trust their instincts um, often it's really hard to gauge what's going on with our kids, but I think so many times when I have met a, a child in crisis, and I say child cause teenager, whatever sure. age, the parent often had concerns mm-hmm. and didn't know where to go. They didn't know who to call. And so I would say to trust that and to just move forward with it and know that our system is broken in many respects. There are many great people trying to improve it and to increase access, but to get started. And so I think getting information from other parents like you is so important because I think it makes the conversation easier. You know, when we've mm-hmm. got other parents saying, yes, I've been there. This mm-hmm. is hard, but it can be okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's really number one is listening to that and taking action and, and not giving up. I think it's so frustrating to hear when parents say, I called and the office didn't even call me back. You know, I've mm. talked to clinicians in the community that say they're so overwhelmed with phone calls that they can't even call everyone back. It's, sure. it's terrible. But I would say to not give up and to get on those wait lists and to keep trying um, because your, your child deserves it. And we certainly, we have to change our system mm-hmm. so that it's not so hard for parents. It it shouldn't be so much more difficult to address a life-threatening condition like suicidal thoughts for young people than it is to get treatment for cancer, mm-hmm. right? They are both mm-hmm. so important. But unfortunately in our society today, there's a huge disparity. So we have to keep working to change that for sure. That is very good advice. 
Is there anything that I did not ask you that you would like to say? Hmm. Usually there is, but I feel like... I mean, I guess one thing I, I could just bring up about Prepped and Ready, mm-hmm. um, the parents were satisfied with it, but the part that was really exciting was that it seemed to make changes, mm. that the parents who were firearm owners were five times more likely to report that their firearms were locked up, unloaded with the ammunition locked up separately. And that is really the gold standard way to store firearms in the home. And so that gets me really excited that if we can reach more parents, that we could really make a difference Mm -hmm. on a a huge scale in our country, Um, not only with suicides, but with some of these other awful deaths that we're seeing, that if young people do not have that access, that we could have a safer community. Mm. Uh, Yeah, that's a good point. So, well, Dr. Sullivan, I really thank you so much for joining me today on Just a Mom. And I know that that there will be people who hear this and will go to your website, the Children's Mercy website in Kansas City, to access those videos. And would you just tell us one more time what that website is? Yeah, if you just go to your favorite search engine and type in Prepped and Ready Children's Mercy, it will come up right there. And you can always email us at preppedandready at cmh.edu. And I'm here to tell you, anybody who's listening, these videos are fantastic. They are wonderful. They're great resources. So please look into them, share them with everyone you know, because they are they are really well done and they address all of these really difficult topics, including anxiety, suicidal ideation, eating disorders, et cetera. So thank you so much for the work that you do in prevention and for working to save the lives of our children. Oh, thank you so much, Susie, for having me and for the work that you're doing, because I think we really have a gap in our community and in our world and parents need more support. And so leaders like you are going to really make a huge difference, I believe. Well, thank you very much. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Once you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain and them clouds that keep covering up the sun. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.